welcome to podcast number 57 for Thanks for Your Service. Our focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can also email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. This week we continue with part two of our podcast, talking to Michael Veach about his latest book, Australia's Secret Army. The Americans actually appreciated the Coast Watchers far more than the Australians ever did. It, it, it's one of the kind of depressing uh, after, yeah. after stories of this. But I mentioned the radio because um, uh, at this time, at the beginning of the war, thank goodness, uh, radios, which became the Coast Watchers' weapon, started to become uh, uh, readily available. AWA had the monopoly on broadcasting for the Australian government in these areas, and they had developed the 3B teleradio, which was, as opposed to these things we hold in our hands and do everything on, David, um, the 3B teleradio was uh, a very efficient um, uh, long wave and short wave radio, and it did its job, but it was the weight and dimensions of a small family car. Mm. So it had to be basically traipsed through the jungle. It came in about sort of six or seven parts, all encased in um, um, uh, in, in cast enameled metal. There was an engine to power two car batteries, literally, uh, that drove the set. There was an aerial, there was a receiver, a transmitter. Uh, it was very heavy, very cumbersome, but thank goodness, very robust. But it was cutting edge technology 85 years ago. The Coast Watchers um, then set to work. For the first sort of year of the war, as we uh, discussed when the Japanese didn't turn up, uh, they didn't. They looked out, looked out for a few German ships that were in the area. A couple had a part to play in the um, spotting of the Cormoran, which went on to tragically sink our HMAS Sydney in uh, 1941. But then everything would change, of course, when Japan entered the war virtually on this day, 81 or so years ago, when uh, Japan be began not just Pearl Harbor, but it was this it was the trigger point for one of the most incredible advances in military history, in the in the, in the, in the history of military history. The hundred days following Pearl Harbor was the most astonishing blitz achieved by the Japanese Empire that basically sprung out uh, with its e epicenter of, of um, um, Japan. They, in a few weeks, they had conquered swathes of territory, not just the attacks on Wake Island and 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 Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. They'd begun to their invasion of Malaya, Hong Kong. They'd kind of you know con their way into occupying without a shot being fired Thailand. Uh, what uh, uh, what became Vietnam, French Indochina, all these places just started falling to the Japanese in weeks. Nobody could believe it. And the inexorable tentacles reaching south, the Australian government went, my God, look what's, look what's happening. <laughs> in the middle of this time, John Curtin, our wartime prime minister, what a, what a great time. Well, he, he, just before the Japanese invasion, I think October 41, he... I think, but very soon he was faced with this incredible situation 
and there's a great story of um, uh, Curtin's uh, 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 secretary late at night coming into his office in um, Parliament House and seeing if he wanted a cup of tea with his head in his hands, shaking his head, looking up and saying, the country's lost. There, there, there's nothing we can do. And that's what they believed. So where they were heading for, of course, were these islands on their way to Australia. So people believed. Let's not get into if uh, if Japan could have or indeed intended to invade the Australian mainland. I personally don't think they could have. So they probably weren't really planning to just for that reason. However, it beside the point for two reasons. A, they didn't have to. All they had to do was to basically checkmate us out of the war by blocking us off from the rest of the world. And all they had to do was to take Port Moresby and control the sea lanes to our north. They could control who comes from America. They could hide their immense navy. And, um, and the second point is that we believed Japan was going to invade the Australian mainland. So we prepared for that. Mm. And all we had um, were a um, bunch of fellows who'd been sent uh, completely under-resourced and undermanned to one part of New Guinea, which was that port of Rabaul on New Britain, which we knew had to be in Jap Japan's firing line to try and defend it, and a bunch of civilian coast watchers. And that's all we had. And they came to interact in the first few tragic months of the war when indeed the poor battalion known as Lark Force uh, was defeated in a few hours by Japan's invasion in February 1942 of Rabaul. And here opens, David, one of the most disgraceful chapters in our military history where we had sent this bunch of boys, the boys from the suburbs of Melbourne and Hobart and Adelaide, up to this place with no training, no jungle, not even allowing them to have jungle training in the months they were there, not preparing them for the realities. They should not have been sent there in the first place. There was no way they could have even, if they were in parity with the Japanese, they probably could have defended it. But to be four or five times outnumbered by one of the most efficient armies and blooded armies in the world, and then just simply to abandon them as they scattered into the jungle was mm. a terrible disgrace and one which really hasn't been examined. Uh, so that's what happened uh, with the Japanese amphibious invasion, their first real step into attacking the Australian Australian territories um, in this, in this uh, battle that dispersed, uh, shattered this battalion of seven, eight hundred men into the vast jungles of, of uh, the island of New Britain. Canberra washed their hands of it. They said, well, well, there's nothing we can do. We don't have control of the air. We haven't got any airplanes. We haven't got any proper ships. Um, uh, we don't know what to do. You know, best of luck, fend for yourselves. Mm. Enter a coast watcher, a fellow who, uh, a guy called Keith McCarthy, who had been one of the that island's um, administrative assistants before the war. He took it upon himself to round these fellows up as best he could to um, gather these poor, starving, ill-equipped, ill-prepared, shocked and shattered men who were sort of wandering around the jungle being picked off by the Japanese, captured, um, brutalised, massacred, one of the great war crimes that Japan um, 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 did on us was at a rubber plantation called Toll, 
and became known as the Toll Massacre, where they simply butchered and bayoneted a hundred or so of these young boys to death in a rubber plantation for no real reason, just their, you know, Japan's brutality in that war simply it, it continues to shock and astonish me. Mm. And more so because that country has never acknowledged what they did. And in my last book, the epilogue of my last book about the Bismarck Sea, I actually went to Japan, which I enjoyed going to very much, but I went to the military museum. My God, that was a mistake. And here's, and it's fascinating, Dave, if you've ever been there, it has all the wonderful, uh, the samurai stuff and all the swords going back a thousand years and all this interesting stuff. Then it gets up to the 20th century and it's like you're reading this dreadful propaganda. And I'd started, my girlfriend's time saying, calm down, calm down. But can you read this? Mm. But it was terrible. It was terrible. And young Japanese children then, of course, have no idea of what, mm. what their, their country did during this, 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 this time. But anyway, there you go. To me, there were so many heroes in your book. Does one in particular stand out for you? I think the fellow I was talking about now, Keith, probably does it for me. He and Paul Mason and Jack Reed are the three kind of kingpins. Um, but I do want to mention one of the other women as well who actually comes into, into this story, who was a sort of I group as an, as an associate coast watcher, even though she wasn't officially on the books. She did so much work. But this... Um, this story of what happened at Rabaul, it's one of the most heroic episodes of, of Australian history. Keith was an, was a, he was an Irishman, a naturalised Australian Irishman who hadn't just fled Australia to live in the islands, he'd fled Ireland to live in Australia and then went up there. And when word got out that the Australian garrison at the capital had been defeated and dispersed as i said he took it upon himself and a few others to organize basically kind of a pied piper type odyssey to gather these men up and spirit them to safety and so that's what he did he gathered several hundred of these blokes and he had his radio with him but was getting no love from the from the army they, they just said oh well we, we can't help you we'll try and send some boats over there a little flotilla of civilian boats, a little mini Dunkirk ensued in which this uh, Australian, um, Australia, a bunch of a dozen or so Australians had small boats over on Ley on the New Guinea mainland, took it upon themselves to sail over and do what they could. But they had to get these people away from the Japanese and they had to feed them and they had to look after them and their health was deteriorating and some were wounded and the tropics are tough. You sort of scratch your leg on a, on these prickles and vines and you get infected and malaria is dreadful. It's a really tough place. So, but he, over the course of um, uh, going in, into March, April 1942, he did in fact manage to protect uh, a, a, a couple of hundred of these men. And Rabaul is about... Uh, New Britain is this banana-shaped island about 500 miles long. It's, I'd love to go there. It's kind of crazy. It's been terribly deforested, apparently, but uh, a lot of the jungle is still there. But he got them away, and he was at a point where all the Australian army could do is suggest, oh, well, look, if you can get over to New Guinea, maybe you can walk across the mountains, and then we'll pick you up. And they say, are you kidding? These guys are dying. And 
then this other episode happened about this time uh, that see the little boats had arrived, but they couldn't take many people. Then what they needed was a big ship. And he was begging the Australians to send a big ship over. They said, we just don't have one. It would just get sunk because the Japanese have control of the water. So, And there was one episode where these um, Australian soldiers of Lark Force were on the beach sort of resting in exhaustion. And they see a little yacht, a single-masted yacht, like a little, little, um, uh, little skiff approaching the shore. And it comes up to the sand. And a woman gets out. She's a beautiful woman and she's in this and her hair's really well done and she's in this apparently kind of you know silk pants and a, and a nice blouse and she's kind of tall and gorgeous and she walks up the, and these a few of the men literally literally thought that they had died and gone to heaven they actually thought that this is the oh well day and this is an angel coming towards us some of the religious ones but it wasn't um uh it was a woman called Mrs. Baker, by any chance? Was it? Yes, pause. Yes. Glad, glad. I just forgot. Glenda, so glad. It was a woman called Gladys Baker. Now, Gladys Baker was one of these civilians who, with her husband, had done very well for herself with a rubber plantation on another little island uh, about 20 k's off the New Britain coast um, um, called. Um, um, off the New Britain coast called Witu, W-I-T-U. Now, she was a, a remarkable girl. Anyone under 50 is a girl for me, so I'll call her, I should call her a woman. But she's a remarkable woman. Uh, she ran this plantation herself after her um, husband died, had died a few years earlier from the dreaded Blackwater fever, which would ultimately get her eventually, which is a very nasty complication of malaria. Um, she was a sportswoman. She was a uh, she was a superb shot. She was a brilliant navigator. She was a sailor. She was just all round a all round champion. And she, and they had a very successful. She was a good businesswoman. But she'd heard on the on the grapevine and on her radio of the disaster at Rabaul. So she had her native uh, spies coming back from the Antonio. Look, there are all these soldiers there, and they're they're in a bit of a de desperate way. And so she took it upon herself to sail over and happened to see where these blokes were, got off the boat, walked up the beach and said, who's in charge here? Walks up to Keith McCarthy and said, what's going on? And he said, oh, well, 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 ma'am, um, <laughs> we're in a bit of a pickle here. I've got all these blokes here and, you know, some are dying, literally. I've had to bury a few, but they're all starving. We don't know what to do. We've got to get back to Australia. And she paused and said, well, over there on that island, um, I have an ocean-going vessel. You can have it if you like. <laughs> and he said, what? Mm. <laughs> and so that's what happened. She was just coincidentally a, a, um, a big sh ship called the Lakatoy had pulled up at her plantation to take on a load of copra. But the captain, uh, as it turned out fortuitously, had got the wobble and said, I'm not going out. I'll get sunk by the Japs. I'm staying here. So she said to... McCarthy's people, well, if you go over and commandeer that ship, I think all these people would fit on it. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the great episodes of these two remarkable people. And she was so brave because God knows what would have happened to her if the Japanese caught her. I mean, it's another thing. People forget the Japanese. I mean, what they did to women, Japanese, people don't realize that. And particularly, the, the, it's unspeakable. Um, and so, she, you know, the nurses, we, we know about nurse... Um, 
Bullmore, I think her name was, and well, she would have suffered a terrible fate, and she knew it. But she navigated this ship through the reefs, uh, not just to New Guinea, but McCarthy decided after they got on board this ship to head all the way to Cairns. And there's an incredible anecdote of the um, uh, soldiers of Lark Force turning up just coming into Cairns Harbour and getting off the boat and walking down in formation as best they could the main street of Cairns with the people of Cairns just like not even saying anything because they look like ghosts. Half of them were had clothes that were rotting on their bodies. Barely any of those men came yeah. back to fight. They had done. Now, you mentioned before that it seems that the American military appreciated the work of the Coast Watchers more than the Australian military. And I was, su I was surprised at the general lack of recognition that people like the Golden Voice and Page stand out. Yeah. Why, why were they and the others not formally recognised by the Australian government, do you think? It's such an interesting question, David. And in all my writings, I've, came, I've come across this time and time again uh, it gets back to <laughs> perhaps uh, matters for discussion outside the scope of what we're talking about today. And that goes something to the Australian character, I, I have to say. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll never forget the stories of the, R, the RAAF blokes that told, when, when I did some of my earlier books, which were basically interviews with them while they were still living, the fellows who went over to fight and die on great numbers as we know with the royal air force uh even uh, often they would come back to australia and in their words they were treated like shit they even if they had even to the extent that like if a sergeant or well no, i don't think they could do that but say if a, a flight lieutenant was promoted to squadron leader he went over in an rwf uniform uh, fought well with the Royal Air Force, was promoted to uh, uh, promoted. The rank would be taken off him when he came back to Australia. It was the um, uh, the Australian airmen in Bomber Command were highly respected, highly appreciated. British airmen wanted to fly with Aussies because we were good at it. Um, we fought bravely and fought well. Um, look, I'm, I'm not saying every aspect of us, the Australian fighting man, uh, we're all not warriors. We did some pretty, you know, there, there's some dodgy things, you know, let's not talk about our, our, our behaviour from what our people did in the evacuation of Singapore. It was pretty dodgy. Um, um, but the treatment the RAF guy, the, the, the Australians got from the Royal Australian Air Force when they came back here, was often terrible. Some blokes that I spoke to reckoned that they knew people that um, took their own lives because they were basically harassed and not appreciated and basically bullied and like, oh, you were over there when we were fighting the Japs and you're a coward and all that terrible, terrible things. To For an Australian airman to get a decoration flying in the Pacific, defending their own mainland, was a virtually impossible. It was far more appreciated by the Brits than we were, and that extends to people, the Coast Watchers too. Um, who knows? The blokes that fought in the 44 days, the fighter pilots that fought uh, in 75 Squadron, they hadn't even been to Europe. They went straight from their training grounds, uh, training schools up to Port Moresby in March, uh, February, March 44. 
they were basically shot on from a great height, even though they were defending their country at enormous odds. I don't know, David. It goes to a lack of appreciation of our own people, an inferiority complex. Who knows what it is? The cultural mm. cringe, I don't know. But um, it's a sad story. It's a sad story. What's in the pipeline next for you? Uh, well, I actually want to talk about... Uh, I want to finish off with the Pacific. And what I've really enjoyed doing is um, finding the lesser told stories of the Pacific War. And the last chapter of what we did at in Borneo in 1945 is the last chapter to be told, the invasion of Tarakan and Balakpapan in July 1945, an all-Australian operation, brilliantly done, but was it in fact even necessary? It's a strange story and one that hasn't been told, but it'll be called something, the final chapter, but it'll, it'll be my final chapter of the, um, of the uh, Australians in the Pacific. And, and can we look forward to that in 2023, do you think? Uh, no. <laughs> I wish, I wish it'll be the year after. All right. I haven't now, started it yet, but I'm, okay. my, I'm, I'm in the middle of the research now. Yeah. Now, Michael, Christmas is just around the corner, and this book, Australia's Secret Army, the story of Coast Watchers in World War II, would make an excellent present. Where can people purchase the book? All good bookshops have it, David, and I couldn't agree with that sentiment. Any, any, I couldn't have put it better myself. It's available on Amazon. Uh, it's available on Booktopia. Um, if you want to um, hit me up on my um, um, website or social media, I'm very happy to arrange a stamp, self-addressed envelope. Him, uh, send me a message, and I'll very happily sign it for you. If you want to do it that way, I'm on Facebook, um, Michael Veach. Just hit me up and we can do it that way or else just buy it online or at a, at a shop. But um, uh, we've had some good, um, uh, lovely reviews from it. It was the ages um, pick of the week when it came out the following week. So I was very happy about that. So um, it's been a joy to write it about this to at least get some of the stories of these remarkable men and women out there. And it's been a pleasure talking to you again. And uh, we've been lucky to have you on twice this year for both of your books. <laughs> Michael, thank you again for your time today. Thanks, David. That's the podcast for today. We're keen to hear your feedback. And if you're listening to us via iTunes or other podcast apps, please leave a review. Your reviews help others find our podcast. And you can help support this podcast via Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee. The links are on our website and Facebook page. And your support helps us with the production of this podcast. Season's greetings and a happy new year. And thanks for listening.